bottom line is that kids are hardly playing at all these days. I mean, we've gone from hours a day to barely an hour a day. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 403. Today, we're talking about reclaiming play with Avital Schreiber-Levy. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark-Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Welcome back. I'm glad you're here. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. That should not be the new jingle. That's for sure. But welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Listen, if you haven't yet done so, please make sure you're subscribed. And please do me a favor and go over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast, if it helps you, because this is the most powerful thing you can do to help the podcast grow more. It just takes 30 seconds, and I hugely, hugely appreciate it. And in just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with someone I am honored to call, another person I'm honored to call, a friend, Avital Shriver-Levy. She's a mom of five who created an online world that inspired millions of parents around the world from over 100 countries and walks of life to create a family life they love. And she works on combating today's culture of anxiety, screen addiction, and hypersensitivity. And she offers a roadmap guide to parents who want to raise anti-fragile children. We're going to talk about her book, Reclaim Play, which is about reclaiming independent play. And this is so important because kids' independent playtime has dropped precipitously in the last 30 years, and it's hurting kids. And we're going to talk about why that is and how we can reclaim the lost art of independent play. And honestly, dear friend, I invite you to picture yourself putting your feet up while your child plays without your involvement. This is our North Star we're going towards today, so we'll give you some concrete steps to make that happen. So join me at the table as I talk to Avital Schreiber-Levy. Are you struggling with kids fighting, yelling, and more despite listening to the podcast and reading all the books? Parenting can be so overwhelming and exhausting. You know, I see you and I have something that will help. Mindful Parenting SOS. I'm offering free live mindful parenting sessions starting Monday, May 6th. Basically, live mindful parenting lessons that you normally have to pay for. So if you struggle with getting your kids to listen, tantrums, misbehavior, and feeling the guilt of yelling at your kid, then you should definitely get your spot in Mindful Parenting SOS. I'll be there to answer your questions in person, and if you can't make it, we will have replays available. Don't wait to get your spot now. It's free. Go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash SOS to register. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash SOS. I can't wait to see you there. Well, Avital, thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast again. And uh, it's such an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. And I'm so excited to talk about play because I feel like it's so important. And I just thought I think it would be interesting to start out with like kind of you and your childhood and like kind of what play was. I was thinking it might be interesting to talk about what play was like for either of us, because for me, like my childhood, I had so much freedom and so much free play. I mean, I met my oldest friend when I was four years old, just like kind of wandering around on my quiet street, like singing Annie songs. And then I would just like and I just went to their house and that was just fine. You know, like everything was and I had tons and tons of freedom to explore the neighborhood, to get around the town and all kinds of different things. And and I feel like that I had so, so much imaginative play. And I feel like that has maybe helped me in life. But I, and I'm curious about was it the same for you? Because you didn't you grew up in Israel, right? London. London. OK, that's why. 
your accent is so <laughs> fancy schmancy. <laughs> I grew up in London. We moved to Israel when I was just turning nine. So I, yeah, so I'm a little bit of a, a mishmash. But that's such a beautiful story. I love that. I could just imagine little Hunter singing Annie to herself and finding a friend and wandering off to their house. How gorgeous. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, a lot of my earliest memories definitely involve this imaginary play. I loved dolls and Barbies and Lego and stuffed animals and drawing and anything artistic. I know we share that in common that we love creativity and artistic endeavor and singing and acting out. I love to plan shows and make a show and then sit all the adults down and force them to watch my show. And Oh, that's so perfect for you. That makes so much sense. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, yeah. So a lot of that in my childhood. And it's funny because I'm the youngest of six, um, but we have quite big gaps. And so in, in some ways I was a bit of an only child because there weren't any kids my age. My, my closest sister is five years older than me and she found me the most annoying thing in the world and never played with me. And so I really played a lot alone. And one of the things I really remember is actually how much my mom appreciated that. Um, and how she used to kind of praise me and say, you know, that I was so good at entertaining myself and she could take me anywhere. She could take me wherever she needed to take me or whatever, because she knew I could always entertain myself. If I had a piece of paper and a pencil or if I, you know, had a doll with me or whatever, I would be fine. So, yeah, I think it actually and, and Hunter, you were the first person to ever ask me that question about my own childhood play. But it's just interesting to reflect on it for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the imaginative play. I mean, I feel like in so many ways, like, I remember mourning that when I grew out of it because it was like really like in a lot of ways, like those are some of the best years of your life to have this, this whole world that you can escape into and like do whatever with my My Little Ponies and the dollhouse, you know, and just like out in the backyard and, and running around with kids in the neighborhood and stuff like that. And I feel sad thinking about like I feel sad thinking about kids these days missing that. But that's a thing, right? Like independent play has really decreased. And there isn't there, there's like even research about this, right? Oh, there's a lot of evidence about that. Yeah. And there's a lot of different reasons for it. But the bottom line is that kids are hardly playing at all these days. I mean, we've gone from hours a day to barely an hour a day, if that. So yeah, there's been a huge decrease. And I'd love to go into some of the reasons, but it's really, um, it's really a loss. It's really like, a, I really call it a lost art, you know, it's gone. It really breaks my heart to think about that because I feel like that's like this, it's something that just builds this, uh, you know, this sense of self, right? Like, and they, researchers talk about that, like it builds a, a sense of, you know, all those things like emotional regulation, self-awareness, all these things. But like, when I really think about it, like it really builds like this sense of knowing yourself. That's what I think of. Yeah. There are so many documented benefits and we have longitudinal studies with this and it's, it's from really, it's it's just crazy because if you could bottle up these results and put them in a pill, people would be handing this out to kids like candy. You know, it's things like academic success, things like uh, emotional regulation and the ability to, you know, exercise your prefrontal cortex and your executive functions. Um, it's things like social and emotional skills, vocabulary, physical strength, um, just uh, core strength and vestibular and balance. And so many, you know, so many of just the physical health um, results that come from free and autonomous and self-directed play. Um, so and, and then also I really just think of it like free therapy, you know, because kids will naturally visit all of their most difficult topics, all of their traumas, all of their challenges. You know, they'll go straight to whatever's hurting them in their play and it will be very, very healing and therapeutic. In fact, often much more effective than having a conversation around it. Um, instead going, you know, and that's why we have things like play therapy, because it's really like the subconscious, you know, kind of backdoor to our children's brains is through their imagination. And if you think about it, like all mammals play, the longer the childhood, the more time for play, the more time for learning. So the bigger the brain, the more complex the species that always correlates with a longer childhood, like really intelligent species have long, long childhoods and ch and humans have the longest childhood. And that's because we need to learn a lot in order to succeed in, you know, in our species and play equals learning. So really, there's just so much to be gained from it. And I think one of the most exciting things about it is that it's all naturally wired into children, right? We don't, it's, it's one of these power struggle free areas. You don't need to coerce them to do it. You don't need to force them to do it. Like 
they are literally hardwired to do it. And it's enjoyable and rewarding in and of itself in an intrinsic way. So I, I really think of it this as like a gift that Mother Nature gave us. Like, here, let me encode into your children exactly the type of urge and drive and passion for something that's going to benefit them in every realm of their lives for free. <laughs> like, how amazing is that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I'm I'm super into like when I am on social media. I love like the like reels of little animals playing. I'm such a sucker for that. Like I saw this like little baby elephant like playing and it was just like popping around and bouncing around. And then baby elephant like played with a goose and it scared it. Baby elephant and baby elephant like fell over and then ran to mama. It was so cute. It was like exactly what humans do. It was so funny to see that in the elephant. I love that. So yes, we need this, right? Like we're hardwired to do it. Why is it decreasing? It doesn't make any sense like to me though. What what are the factors that are decreasing our kids' play? So I have an acronym for you. <laughs> um, I like to say that play was stolen, right? And stolen is the acronym that describes where it's gone. Um, and it's just had this very, very kind of stark decrease over the past, I'd say, three decades, uh, really. So the S in uh, stolen stands for safetyism. And that's the rise in perceived concern around children's safety, even when uh, the the realm of concern is over something that's actually not, uh, you know, statistically a risk. Like in most places in the US, kidnapping is not a, a realistic risk. Your kid would have to stand out on the sidewalk for about 1,600 years for them to have a statistically significant uh, um, chance of getting kidnapped. But when you p- plaster milk cartons with faces of missing kids, of the you know three missing kids that do exist, um, then parents start to feel like that's a reality that could be on my street at any moment. And so they start limiting children's freedom uh, to roam and explore and find their friends while singing Annie outside. And so safetyism doesn't just affect parents' uh, willingness to allow children outside, say, let's say a nine-year-old being allowed to go over to a friend's house or to the library or to the playground by themselves, um, as Lenore Skenazi found out on her own skin, right, when she let her nine-year-old ride the subway because he wanted to and he was excited to and he did so successfully. She was then uh, labeled the worst mom in America, which was a label she then wore proudly. But, um, you know, that's what happens when you kind of fight back against those anxieties and against those fears. So the cultural dictate is that you should give in to anxiety and fear and you should coddle and protect and overprotect to the point that children don't have any freedom. The thing is that it's not just about outside the house. It's also inside the house, right? We've sterilized our children's play um, play things. They're all plastic. They're all rounded edges. They all basically look the same and feel the same. Um, we've kind of made everything so safe and so protected. And we see this in the playgrounds where there are no longer any carousels. There are no longer anything really high to climb on or, or fast to slide down. Um, it becomes actually really boring at this point. And really, um, children are also internalizing the message that they can't trust themselves and that every risk is too much risk. So that, if you know, if you can't take any risk, you can't play, right? Because it involves some kind of physical or emotional or, or intellectual risk to improvise and to try something and to push yourself and even a social risk. And those risks have all been mitigated. We don't even let them take social risks, like making a friend with a stranger in the park, like it's going to be, you know, a pre uh, predetermined uh, adult directed activity, like, you know, soccer practice, nothing against soccer, but it's always going to be a- adults directing the play and not the children. So that's, that's the S, that's safetyism. And then the T is tech addiction. I think we all know enough about this, but, you know, screens have really replaced and and I'm not a technophobe. I think there's a lot to love about technology. We're using it right now. I think it's magical and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, and I think it has a place in childhood uh, to a certain degree, but it's really um, a lot of my criticism towards screen usage is not just what happens on the screen, but what doesn't happen off of the screen, right? Um, what it takes away from. And I think Yes, you can still enjoy screens, but you do still need to move your body outside to explore the physical world, to touch different sensory inputs. And so the thing is that we can't really compete, right, with that video video game feeling. It's so stimulating. It's so exciting. It's so addictive that there's there's, there's no real way that after that you go to wooden blocks, right? Like, it's so boring. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcasts right after this break. 
I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. As parents, we know that there are so many things in life that we have to compromise on. But when it comes to your health, there is no compromise. So don't go back to that doctor that doesn't really listen to you. Instead, check out ZocDoc. This is a place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, there's no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you actually know about. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between just 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com mindful and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash mindful. ZocDoc.com mindful. It's so boring. Yeah. And it's like a stimulant, right? Like we talked to Victoria Dunkley about that. It's a stimulant. So your body, your your child, you get all stimulated, all excited, but the body is not moving at all. So it's a stimulant, but the huge excess of energy, right? That was kind of produced and then comes out in all these ways. So yeah, that dopamine hit. Yeah. Right. So that's the T. And then the O is the overachievement that we've kind of got our children on, right? That kindergarten has become like resume building. And so we tend as parents in today's day and age not to value activities that we can't see a grade on, a measurement for, a trophy for, an accolade for, etc. And play really is like that. It's intrinsically rewarding. There is no level that you reach. There is no uh, you know, certificate that you gain. And so people just tend not to value play in that competitive environment. And we know this, like we, we really know this from research that kindergarteners are learning more and more earlier and earlier for longer and longer hours with more and more homework um, and with zero evidence to show that this improves their test scores later on or their academic success. So it's just an exercise in, in waste, I think, um, because, you know, we could have the argument if you were seeing some improvement in their academic skills. It's not even helping. The more, 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 earlier, earlier, earlier is not actually improving. Um, their, their studies, it's, it, it might even be decreasing their success. And in fact, there is very clear correlation between hours spent in play and academic success later on. For example, Finland, where they only start academic studies at the age of seven plus, really no formal academic instruction before the age of seven. So no ABCs in kindergarten, just play. And then they have the shortest uh, school day with the longest recess and the longest summer holiday. And yet they're scoring you know, uh, uh, some, an order of magnitude higher on international standardized tests. And so our theories are off. We have the we have the evidence to show it. And I think at this point, the overachievement really needs to shift. It's, uh, I, I'm all about achievement, but this just isn't the way to get there, in my opinion. Um, that's the O. Yes. I think, wait, I just want to underscore this because I know, dear listener, you have a lot of anxiety about your kid. You want them to do well. You know, you want them to achieve things in life and academic success is super important. But this is real. It's not just like a nice airy fairy thing to talk about that we're like, oh, they should be having more pre-play and not be doing all these like resume building things. 
it's actually real research proven and that kids with more free play do better academically. So this is something that you can really take to your family, to your partner, to the people who are worried about this and, and you know, point out that there is real evidence for this and that even though you're in your culture or microculture, it may feel like there's a lot of pressure for that academics, like fight back against it because your child will hopefully thank you later. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that, Hunter. I so agree. I think the fight isn't should we or should we not push kids to academic success? Let's just say, okay, say we should. Let's just imagine that the answer is we should. Then the way to do that is actually to increase free, unsupervised, unstructured play in early childhood, because there's direct correlation in longitudinal studies. Uh, We've actually got studies over the course of decades uh, where kids who play with blocks in kindergarten um, in a causational manner improve their academic test scores in maths in high school. And the reason for this, we really can understand it's not just, oh, there's some kind of correlation here. The causation is that when kids are playing, they are exploring scientifically and in an embodied way, learning the laws of physics, the relational laws between things, uh, volume, velocity, acceleration, size, textures. There are so many things that go into building a tower out of blocks, right? And if you're just doing that in a, di- in a digital way, or if you're just doing that on a worksheet, right, you know, two plus seven, you're not actually encoding the understanding of the physical world around you and of math, math rules, for example, uh, into your embodied experience. And so we can all align in the same direction and still say, this is a good, this is a good next step. This is a good idea. Okay. So overachievement. Let's like chill on the overachievement. Cool. L, stolen. L. L stands for loneliness. And that really talks about, uh, you know, our epidemic of, of isolation. I just want to say to anyone listening, I have felt that sting. It's very, it's very tough. It's a very hard pill to swallow. We are not designed to parent in isolation and alone. Um, families are becoming smaller and smaller units and more and more isolated from their extended family, from lifelong friends, from a support network. And that's really hard for us parents. And part of the reason that's hard is because it puts a tremendous pressure on us to be our children's playmates, to, to entertain them, uh, to answer their every need all the time, and to take the sole responsibility and the crushing responsibility of their safety and well-being on ourselves. And if you kind of, you know, imagine, if you will, that we are visiting an indigenous people, and I document this pretty well in my book, there's a lot of examples of this, um, where they're still living in a kind of hunter-gatherer village-type environment. Um, what you'll see is tremendous uh, group responsibility for the kids and a lot of trust in the kids, where the kids are really expected to be playing at the adult skills. Okay, they're playing at things that they're learning for their adult environment. Like, okay, it could be dangerous things like making a fire or cooking or hunting or that kind of thing. But it's kind of dispersed between the adults that they're all kind of keeping an eye. It's not just one parent that's responsible. We're all keeping an eye on all the kids, right? And if you kind of observe from the outside, you might not even know whose kid belongs with which parent at that first moment because there's this kind of joint, um, you know, village atmosphere. And can you imagine how much less stressful it is, right? And how much less pressure. So there are many other pressures like hunting for your food. But um, just in terms of the the, the tremendous uh, pressure that's put on the parent-child relationship when we're so lonely, you know, not every parent has that amazing goodness of fit with their kid that they can just hang out with them 24-7 and be fine. Like, I think that's not exactly how we were designed, you know? Yeah, I'd say that's probably minority. I mean, there are some people who are built that way, you know, but I certainly wasn't one. I was always looked at those like preschool teachers and toddler teachers. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) it's yeah, the loneliness and the isolation is a huge, huge problem. Yes, I completely agree with you. And I have five children and I I would not, you know, I, I do so much better as a mother when I'm in community and they do so much better. They behave better. They're better regulated. There's, there's this kind of joint regulation that happens with others that we're close to when you're raising your children with others. And, and for years, when I moved to the States uh, with my husband, it took us four years to find a family that became like family to us. You know, we would just move thousands of miles away from our, you know, family and friends. And when we found that, it was life altering on a like molecular level, you know, because suddenly I think just from a nervous system perspective, that's 
what we've evolved for. We've evolved to be in community. And I think then suddenly you see your kids go off happily and play and you trust them more and you, you, you're able to, you know, commiserate and support and all of that good stuff. So, um, yeah, loneliness is definitely a big contributor to the decline in play. I mean, it's so huge. I mean, so I live in a like kind of a weird intentional community here in the United States. It's like weird for us, but it's uh, it was founded in 1901 as an artist colony for artists from New York. And there's a lot of um, you can kind of pretend you're in regular suburbia, but there's a lot of things like there's some Saturday night dinners and there's different things, you know, so people are actually really connected. Like where I walk down the street, if I go for a walk in my community, I'm saying to hi or or talking to like five different people like on a regular basis, you know, which is very, very unusual in the United States, right? Like it's super unusual. And I really think that people don't, we were so removed from that experience that we don't really realize what we're missing. But this experience of like for my kid, like the kids in the neighborhood, they all know each other through Zoom team and things like that. And I think it could be, I think they are like kind of stuck in their houses on their on their tech addiction a little too much. Like I can imagine it was different at a different time, but still they have this sense of like, there is this sense of like, we have a community, like up and down my street, like we can, you know, we all hang out and, you know, talk to each other and connect with each other. And that it's that little bit of connection like that just it makes such a huge difference to just, yeah, like what you're saying, like a nervous system, like an exhale feeling of like, go forth get out of the house you know you're fine i think this is something that it's so hard for us to it's so hard for us to individually solve this problem it's it's hard to talk about because we don't i don't have any solution for the listener you know for this except that hold it as a north star that's something you want to aim towards right yeah look i'd say i i have some sol- a solution in the sense that i guess it's what you just said hold it as a north star but really i think you can take it on as an active project i think other people are hungry for this too. And so reaching out, being vulnerable, saying, hey, by the way, you can always knock on my door or, hey, do you want to drop your kids off one day and I'll drop my kids off one day, et cetera. And just building up that relationship. You know, Mm. when I found that friend, I actually, it was like I hit on her. Like I, you know, I had to like strike up a conversation with someone who I didn't know and you have to be brave. It's hard to do that, right? (laughs) To like walk up to a stranger and just say, hey, how old are your kids? And and get chatting. Um, But I think it's worth that investment. And you know, relationships are never easy, but living in isolation is 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 genuinely so much harder over the long haul. And and that's another very clearly, you know, well-researched and well-documented thing is that we see in the blue zones, those areas where there are lots of centurions, uh, centurions, I think it's called, right? People who live past 100. Centenarians. Centenarians, thank you. Like centurions. No, that's the Roman army. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that wrong. Centenarians. Um, all the centurions are marching up and down, <laughs> up into their hundreds. Anyway, um, yeah, we see them, um, and one of the one of the key things is that they are living in community, in close knit communities uh, where people care for each other and take care of each other. And having lived without that for a few years, and then building that up slowly from scratch, and now I've moved back to Israel so that we can kind of be in back in the fold of of our original tribe. Um, I would say that it's something you you can, it takes tremendous effort, but you can put forth that effort and it demands vulnerability. So being willing, let's say, to have people over when your house is less than perfect or, you know, that type of thing so that you can reach out and, and create that. And I think one of the things I'll just say is that I, I personally think the burden of parenting is too much to handle alone. So if you're a single parent, it's even more the case that you need to seek out these lifelong relationships. Um, but even even a couple, you know, even two parents, it's very, very hard to build sanity and health and and connection and all that stuff. We need other people to bounce ideas off, to see how it's done, to learn, to gain perspective on ourselves. And one of the key things that I can say today, and Andrew, I'm curious if you've had this experience too, living in that intentional community is one of the things I'm most grateful for. And one of the reasons we move back across the world is to provide my children with additional mentors and role models, other adults who we respect, who we trust, who we think, look, my child, here's another home. Here's another home. Here's how they do it. Here's how they do it. And we love these people and we respect these people. And when you're coming up against hard times or you've made a mistake, you can go to them for advice. You can feel at home in this home because we are deeply connected. And that gives me a certain sense of peace, right? Like, 
you know, if God forbid I die or if I'm not a very good, you know, leader for my parent, for my children during a specific time in our lives. I know there are other adults who can step in and help and be there for them. And I think that goes a long way when you're parenting to not feel like you're the be all and end all for this for this kid, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I'm not sure. I think they have that those connections in the community. I'm not sure how deep they are. Like they'd feel like I can like live in their home in the same way that in fact I had with actually my oldest friend. <laughs> you know, I spent all my time at her house and they were like a second family to me. But yeah, I'm not sure that they have the same experience because I remember I used to go like at any age, except for the awkward age when she was a lot older than me and she was in her teen years, but I could always like just go show up at their house and I could be there and it could be a different place to be. I'm not sure my kids have that, but they do have this experience of like Maggie did her Eagle Scout project and she like worked with people in the community and she feels very comfortable like talking to all these different adults in the community, feels fine just like going and knocking on the door of our neighbor or like hanging out like our neighbors just had a baby and, you know, just hanging out and holding the baby. And so there is that sense of like interconnectedness, interwovenness. I could see it could be deeper. And I see that as kind of the some of the symptoms of all the things that create that loneliness today. But um, but yeah, it's the bit we have. I cherish it like enormously. Right. Yeah. And I think even that, right, even that is something that's quite rare for kids to have today. Like, you know, neighbors that they're happy to knock on their doors, neighbors that they even know, to be honest. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the loneliness is uh, is incredible. And so, yeah, I I think this is incentive for me. Just having this conversation is so, so glad we're having this. We're going through these because, you know, it, it can be incentive for all of us to like make those awkward first steps, you know, and to model that for our kids because they're really afraid of that. Like teens and adolescents are really afraid of that. Like, oh, my God, like, don't knock on the door. Like, I have to talk to that person. You know what I mean? Like, they're they're afraid of anything awkward because they just don't have to go like they're always you know they can always escape to like a phone in an awkward moment and uh so we we need to we need to which we do too right like so we need to model that for our kids and like kind of make that a priority as best we can completely and i'll just say one little anecdote the friend that i that i made that became like like a soul sister to me you know the first time i came over she was just she's just an incredible woman in all the ways. But one of the ways is that she's an amazing hostess um, because she really makes you feel at home in her home. And she didn't make any kind of, I don't know, I don't know how she did it, but there was always yummy food and it was always clean, but she wasn't stressed out. I still don't know how she did it. It's amazing. But one of the things was the first time I came over, my three-year-old peed on her floor, like, <laughs> like within the first half an hour. Like had a potty accident right on, like she had this little tent and she did, I think she peed in the tent. And I was like, oh no, they're never inviting us back. This is awful. I was so embarrassed and so apologetic. And she was just like, she just looked me in the eye and she goes, Avital, they're kids. And that was that. She's like, they're kids. Of course, they're going to be accidents. Of course, like what, you think this is my first time seeing a potty accident? Like get over it. It's fine. She just was not even having any of it. She was like, it's not a big deal. Let's move on. She really let me feel so at ease, like warts and all, kids and all, mess and all, noise and all, like you're welcome. It works. And and part of that was that she felt comfortable telling me when it wasn't a good time or when we needed to go home or when she needed a favor. Right. And so there's a lot of skills to develop to this. And I learned so much from her and I continue to try to hone my skills in that regard because it's, it's worthwhile. It's, it's, it's very gratifying in the end. We could obviously have a whole conversation about this, but what is the E in Stolen? Awesome. So the E is about excess. And this is really about the fact that our homes have become increasingly cluttered over the past couple of decades. We've really kind of collectively fallen prey to the message that more is more um, and that we can buy our way to happiness or to play through toys. Um, and children today have more toys than ever before. Um, the, the toy industry in America, I think it's a $30 billion industry, if I'm getting that correct. It's a very, very big industry. It's very, very booming. And a lot of parents are really getting the message that if you buy this, your child is going to have the edge. And if you buy this, it will keep them busy for hours. And if you buy this, they'll have their PhD before they're out of diapers. And it's it's just not true. You know, kids can play with a stick and a stone and make their own little toys. And those are often the toys that they play with for the longest and in the most engaged way. It's called the Ikea effect, by the way, when someone builds something they love it the most and they value it at a higher price. That's Dan Ariely research. So the, the idea that more is more is wrong, but it's not just incorrect. It's also very um, counterproductive. 
when children have too much stuff, and this also includes too much stuff in their schedule, but we've kind of covered that in the overachievement. Um, but literally physically too much, too many toys is actually counterproductive because it's very distracting and it doesn't actually allow them the space and the minimalism and the clarity to sink into their imagination, which is the point of play, right? The point of play is not the toy. The toy doesn't equal the play. It's just a tool. So if you think about anything that you use tools for, like cooking or doing your work, you need some tools. Sure. Like, yes, you need your computer. But if you come to your desk and you have seven computers, that doesn't make you do more work or better work or longer work. It just overwhelms you and it actually really distracts you from the work that you're doing. And that's what we're doing to our kids when we overload them with toys. We're overstimulating them and we're actually blocking the play. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcast right after this break. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not gonna tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. So we both know about campaign. He came on the podcast like number 84 or something way back when. And I read Simplicity Parenting when my daughter was two. And I like had this moment where I like I decluttered her toys. I put a bunch of things like away in the closet and like took away like 75% of the toys in her room. And I remember walking home from school for with her and being super scared and just oh my God, she's going to freak out. She's highly sensitive. She's going to explode the way she has for other things, you know, and she loved it. She loved it. She played for two hours by herself as like a two-year-old playing in her room, which is like unheard of at that point. Like she loved it so, so much. And it really like freed things up. And you just think about that. Like if you're, you feel overwhelmed with stuff, like your kid feels overwhelmed with stuff, how much do they value that one toy in the middle of the giant pile of toys like it's it's like too much you just can't focus your brain's too scattered and and i've seen that again and again like when i had less stuff out just like you know clean welcoming environment and all the cardboard boxes they could ever want they played for so long especially on the screen free sundays that was like always the major creative play day exactly exactly cuz then you're really creating that environment I have heard and witnessed a variation on that story from so many people. I'm so scared that they're going to be so mad. I remember decluttering someone's basement with her. She had more toys than I've ever seen. I literally couldn't see the floor. We we took bags and bags and bags to donation. And she was like, my kids are going to be so mad. And they came in and the first thing they did was squeal in delight and say, you found my train set. Like suddenly they could see the train set, you know. And so um, this is this is a key thing. It's such an easy thing to do is buy less. Cool. Awesome. And, um, and, and, you know, donate the things that aren't being played with, um, you know, free it up. We know that 
kids' focus works differently than adults' focus in that they absorb more, but they have less hierarchy. So they can't tell what's important and what isn't. In other words, they could focus on a crack on the floor as much as, let's say, you know, the table that's laid for dinner. Like they don't notice what the key focal point is in a room. So that's why I always advocate for kindergartens and that kind of thing to be a lot more simplified. It's very overwhelming. All those posters on the wall, you know, all the art everywhere, all the primary colors that scream at you. Um, kids actually absorb all of that. They don't, they're not able to filter the way that we can. Like we can walk into that room and just read that one poster, but for them, their eyes are going to be darting around everywhere. So you want your home, you know, I, I teach people to really use their home, use design and interior design, just arranging um, your space in a way that directs the type of play you'd like to see. Right. That's why I teach people to really establish zones, like a messy zone, an imagination zone, a movement zone, um, because then you know what the purpose of this place is. You know what you're supposed to do. You know, kids who come into a playground, for example, they're never confused about what they're supposed to do. This is a movement zone. The objects speak to that. Right. Um, so I encourage you to look at your home like you're a curator of a kid's play space. Right. There shouldn't be too many things. They should be grouped according to category and according to the type of play that they, you know, support. And um, and you've got to keep it appropriate to the quantity, uh, an appropriate quantity to the amount of kids playing. You know, if there's one child there, there shouldn't be millions of enough for an army. You know, it should really be a little bit more simplified or a lot more. Um, you have five kids, right? Yeah. What does this look like in your house as far as like reducing the excess and and also accounting for the range of ages. So we kind of built up our toy library with our first two kids and we don't really add much to it since. Like once in a while, they'll be like, oh, okay, the Magnetile Marvel run, like that sounds great. We'll add it to our collection, but we don't tend to add very much. And in terms of the range of toys, so I tend to think that a lot of toys are really multi-aged. Like if you think about Lego, Lego goes with you from the age of, say, four all the way through to like 12, you know, kids are going to be playing with that. So open-ended and creative and it upgrade, you know, your ideas upgrade, the toy stays the same. And the same is true for like a set of dolls or, um, you know, certain board games or that kind of thing. A ball, like every single age plays with a ball. So I really go for open-ended toys that are more about like a useful tool that anyone can play with at their level and that will grow with the child, if that makes sense. I have to second Lego. Lego has to be like one of the best toys ever created. My oldest friend and I played hours and hours of Lego at her house when I would just walk over there. And and even, yeah, those open-ended things, I remember just thinking like looking at this like Kim, probably Kim Payne's book and it was like, it had this like super crunchy granola idea to like have like play scarves and silks. And I'm like, that is like, what is my do with that that is so bananas and then I got it I was like okay I got you know we got old scarves at Goodwill I got some scarves I put scarves in a basket oh my god like the scarves are like the best the number one they were like the number one toy they could do anything with a scarf I mean it was just unbelievable what they did with scarves I mean it was like I have the same yeah yes I have the same experience I think magnetiles and Lego are like my top toys. And then scarves, we use them for dressing up and for dance shows and for forts. Oh my gosh, they actually are getting like, I need a new set. Like they've got holes in them at this point. They've been played so hard, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wounds for, for doctor and things like that. Yeah. Okay. So too much, too many toys. We got to simplify those toys. And one a super easy way to I mean, I really recommend just like try, try just like a toy purgatory is what I like to call it, you know, just somewhere where they're, they're waiting to see if they'll really go to goodwill, you know, if you have that space, like, and then if, you know, if you're truly worried about your child freaking out over one specific toy, you can go dig it out. Yes. And you can rotate it in on a rainy day when you need to keep them busy. It's like, it's like Christmas morning, like, oh, wow. And it's a new toy, but you know, they've seen it before, but they haven't seen it in a while. It's kind of like it went stale and then you take it out of rotation and it, and it gets new life. So yeah, there are so many tips like that. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's, that's the E that's excess. And then should we do the last one? 
So the last one is about, it's called narration, and it's about our adult involvement and our guided, well-intentioned, but misguided advice to constantly narrate what our children are doing. Um, This is actually based on research that's, it's complex, and it went back and forth around how much a child's vocabulary at the age of three or four, um, you know, influences their future success. Like the 30,000 words or something like it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dana Susskind. Yeah, the 30,000 word gap. Exactly. So there was like, you know, different, different responses to that. One of the responses was to direct parents to talk at their child more. So to describe everything that they're doing. And you'll see this type of advice from pediatricians and from teachers that you should constantly be talking to your children. And Whilst I think you should certainly have conversations with your children and read to them and play with them and develop their vocabulary, when a child is playing independently, when a child is in play, they are into a state that is akin to flow or even to sleep, right? And I write about this in my book. There's certain cycles that you actually have to go through in play in order to get to the really good deep stuff. Like in sleep, you start in this kind of light you know, kind of searching phase where they're not quite sure what to do, a bit of a loose end, a bit bored. And then they pick up on a challenge and they decide to take on that challenge. And then they sink their teeth into resolving that challenge before moving on to the next game. Um, Like sleep, if you disrupt that cycle, you're going to get a grumpy kid, right? And eventually you're going to get a kid who feels like it's not worth it to try and play because I keep getting interrupted. And I think that this advice has actually done a ton of damage in that regard is that when children are in a state of flow, uh, you know, it's the Mihai Senshik Mihai concept of being in this like, you know, time-free, inhibition-free state where you're not aware of your body, your, your tongue is sticking out because you're so focused, you're, you're not worried about what it looks like. Um, it's rewarding, it's challenging. Um, and and this, is, this is one of the mental states that is most highly linked with happiness. And when you interrupt it, you're really kind of stealing that juice, that goodness, that healing stuff, the learning stuff, all the goodies that we spoke about in the beginning. Um, and you're demotivating your child from ever sinking into that state again. And if you do it enough times, they just won't know how because they'll never practice. And so my, I guess my number one advice, my number one piece of advice to parents, or the number one mistake that parents make in this regard, unwittingly, is interrupting. So parents will often come to me and say, my child never plays. My child doesn't play. They just don't have their imagination. They just always ask me for entertainment. And the truth is that that's usually a taught behavior. But if you step back and stop entertaining and stop interrupting and stop commenting, oh, you're lifting up the blue block. Oh, I like how you're playing. You know, stop the praising, stop the narration and just observe, just reflect, just step back. You will notice that your child actually is playing. You know, your child is moving their body, singing a song, picking up something and looking at it. And those are the early stages of play. And if you whisper and tiptoe and stop interrupting, they will start to sink into the deeper stages. And so this narration goes to anything that is basically interrupting. I know sometimes we have to like, okay, it's dinner time or whatever, but trying to respect that and to give them the space to really sink into the good, you know, that deeper rejuvenating levels of play. Oh, wow. So this is this is great because, yeah, I think parents want to be we want to be so involved. We want to like be present for our kids and all these things. And we know our kids want our attention. Right. But this is very different advice that you I think is really important. And this is advice to back off. Right. To give your child space to not interrupt, to give them time by themselves. And I imagine like Parents can say, oh, my God, you know, if I do that, my child comes to me and says, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. So I know I had my line for like what I said when my kids are bored. What do you do? <laughs> oh, I want to hear your line now. Um, You know, I have several things that I do. First of all, I'm OK with boredom. So I'm like, that's OK. I'll kind of be like, it's OK to be bored. Um, And I'll just leave it at that. I won't solve it for them. So I'm kind of hitting the court ball back into their court, like figure it out, buddy. Nice. Yeah, not my problem. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You just become a non a non-collaborator in that regard. You know, and then uh, sometimes I'll be like, okay, um there are plenty of, you know, I'll be like, do you want me to get you down a game from the shelf that you can, you know, reach or I, I might prompt them with a couple of options like you could do art or you know, you could go outside, right? Just give them a couple of options if they're not thinking of something themselves. Um and sometimes I'll be like I have piles of laundry that I need to fold and I'm cooking dinner. Would you like to help me? Um, you know, and I'm, I would love their help, but often they'll be like, no, thanks. I'll find something else to do. <laughs> so, 
Um, I'm all for collaborating on chores. It's not that I want them to get out of that, but I'm just saying there's always something to do around here. And if you can't think of something yourself, I can really put your hands to work, no problem. So um, yeah, but mostly I really think being bored is okay. So when they say that to me, I'm just like, that's okay. You, you'll figure it out. You'll think of something. It's not my problem. And I want to say, I know a lot of parents are like, oh, they might feel neglected. They might feel like I don't love them. What, what aren't I supposed to play with them? And I just want to say, I really feel personally that there are so many ways for me to show my children my love, right? There are so many opportunities throughout the day to sit and have a meal with them, to caretake them, right? You're wiping their butts and you're hugging them and you're kissing their boo-boos and you're getting them a band-aid and you're fixing them a snack and you're tucking them in and you're driving them here and there and you're bathing them and you're talking to them and you're listening. So much that you're doing. And I personally feel that you can really take play off your to-do list. You can connect with your child through conversation, through physical touch, through eye contact, through bonding in a million ways. But I think that for the most part, unless you actually love playing, I'm trying to say this in the least harsh way I can, but I don't think it benefits our children when we begrudgingly sit down and play as another to do on our task list. Play is supposed to be joyful and authentic and connected and genuine. And for me, sometimes I actually love playing, but it has to be at a very rare time when I don't have other things to do, when I'm not, you know, like busy and distracted. I don't want to sit there and force myself to it because I think that teaches our kids to accept a begrudging connection, right? Like, a friend who's like, I don't really want to have coffee with you, but fine, you want to have coffee with me, so I'll have coffee with you. Like, that's not how we want our relationships to look. You know, I, I want people to hang out with me in a playful manner because they really want to. So, you know, I have a Saturday afternoon Lego date with my kids. We get out a, a giant bag of Lego. We all sit around it. We decide what we're building and we build it together. I love that. I actually enjoy it pretty much all of the rest of the time. I'm a no for playing. Like, I don't want to pretend to be a mermaid. I don't have time to do this. You're a kid. And here's the other thing is that I think as adults, we often, and, and this is also quite well documented, we often actually overpower their play and we don't realize that our involvement is actually reducing their interest because it becomes about our attention and we are more developed than them in the sense that we can do fine motor skills that they can't yet master. We can come up with ideas and plots and vocabulary for things that they don't yet have. And so it's very hard for an adult not to overshadow a child. Here, let me do it for you. Here, I'll fix it. Here's the puzzle piece. You know, why don't we build it like this? Here, I'll build that, right? We come up with ideas and we can overshadow. And the whole point is for them to be the directors. The whole point is for them to figure it out. And it's very hard for us to see our child struggling with the piece. So we just come and do it for them and out of the goodness of our hearts. But there, we're just completely reducing their own intrinsic motivation and reward system for it. So give your child attention and connect with your child. Just, I don't think it needs to be through play. I don't think that benefits them. And I think it's going to really cause resentment in you because it's just too much for anyone to take on. We've already discussed how, you know, the burden of parenting, like I will sit and read my book and sip my coffee guilt-free as my children play. Guess what? I'm not a kid. I don't need to play. It's for them, you know, and they know that I'm there. I'm their safe person and they can come back to me. But I think of myself like that lioness, you know, lazing on a rock in the sun while the cubs rough and tumble. You know, she's not getting in there with them and rough and tumbling. She doesn't need to do that. She's an adult. She lies down and relaxes and they play. And I'm so comfortable with that role. And I invite everyone to join me because independent play can be that thing that makes parenting so much easier for you, right? Like you can actually, I, I wrote my book. I run my business. I do all of that because my kids play independently for hours a day. You know, it's helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I'm also hearing is like, there may be some investment in the front end, like just like kind of learning skillful communication and all those different things. Like there's investment in maybe changing your habits in the front end, investment in like dealing with your kid's boredom in the front end, or like maybe creating some boundaries around screens and technology in the front end. And that pays off dividends down the line. Yes. Yes. Decluttering, setting up your home, yeah, getting the right toys, making some friendships in your neighborhood. All of these things can help. Um, mostly, I would say it's an investment in setting up your environment in your home and changing your own behavior around it, right? Being encouraging, but not overly involved, interrupting, praising, all of that stuff and really trusting your child and encouraging them. Um, and, you know, I, I teach all of that in detail, but really, I think this is enough to go on to really understand that once you prioritize it, Yes. So yeah, it takes some investment. And I think like like most things, the number one thing is belief in your child and in yourself that this is their birthright. This is what they were designed to do. Like 
they're mammals. Mammals play in childhood, you know? So if we just give, if we just get out of the way, give them the environment to do it, they will. And it might take a little bit of a threshold of resistance at the beginning because they're not used to it. But yes, it pays off dividends. I have five children and I feel so confident being home for the day, even if I have Zoom calls, even if I have meetings, even if I have lots of housework to do, because I know that they will play. They will play imaginatively, deeply for hours. Like that's a gift to any parent to have that kind of confidence, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love this sort of like possibility that you're sharing for us because it is possible. It can be done. And absolutely. My favorite thing, way to be involved was when they when they played, if they wanted my involvement was like if they were playing masseuse and I would like they would build up like this mound of pillows and I would lie like a dead person on the mound of pillows and they would massage my back. That was like the best game they ever thought of. I was like, I'm down with this one. No Candyland for me, though. No way. <laughs> yeah. I saw a post years ago on Facebook, which was like five different games you can play with your kids while you're lying down and not saying anything. And it was all like masseuse or like they're building a mountain on your back with pillows or they're like, you know, dead lions, all these different ideas that you could do without moving. <laughs> I'll just take a little nap here. I'm a dead lion. Yeah, work with that. Thanks, kids. <laughs> well, this is awesome, Avital. I love this. Like, I think that in looking at how play is stolen from our kids and, you know, we're we're looking at these are all the ways that we can take the opposite. We get where we can encourage independent play, where we can, you know, overcome the the resistance, overcome the boredom. Just with the knowledge that it's this is not your problem. It's not your job to entertain your kids. And in fact, your kids are going to be better off for you backing off and not entertaining your kids, not interrupting and, and all of those things. And I think that the idea of simplifying our house is like in our environment is really appealing to lots of us. Like, oh, I remember realizing like, oh, I don't have to have this annoying talking, noise making piece of plastic like okay, I'm going to keep it for like a month because my mother-in-law might like come back and see if it's there. But then I'm getting rid of it like as soon as I possibly can. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Hunter. That's never happened to me. <laughs> but exactly, it's so liberating. I think we all could do with a bit of simplicity and decluttering in our lives. I really, I think, yeah, like how much fun that this is also, I just love I love talking about independent play because I love that this is a solution that involves less, not more, right? It's like, actually, you need to do less. You need to have less stuff. You need to worry less. You need to be involved less. Like, just sit back. Just relax. Um, it's so easy and fun to be able to sell that idea, right? Uh, like, spend less money. Spend less time on it. You know, no one no one stands, to, except for me, because I sell courses and books on this, but no one else stands to benefit. No one else stands to make money. You know, it's not an industry selling independent play right? We're sold a million other things that are going to stuff up our lives with stuff. And it's it's literally stolen the play away from the kids. And, and that's terrible because it's so great for them and so great for us. And so, yeah, just notice like it's enticing. I get enticed by the classes and the toys and all the things. And then I'm like, wait, wait, no, 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 wait, wait. My kids just need to play with their imaginations, with themselves, with their friends, right? With the space, with music on in the background, whatever, just simple. That's what they actually need. Yeah. Well, Avital, it's been so such a pleasure to talk to you. I always love hanging out with you. I wish we had a little portal between Delaware and Israel, but uh, but we don't. <laughs> Where can people find out more about you have, I know, a book this year and and where can they continue the conversation with you? So, yeah, the best place to go for this topic is reclaimplay.com. And there they can learn all about the upcoming book, Reclaim Play, and my course, Reclaim Play. And if you want to go deeper in it, I have some free trainings there. Uh, all about setting up the play zones. So that could be a really good next step just to learn how to set up those play zones and get your kids playing for hours so you can drink your coffee while it's hot. Nice coffee day. Just toast to me and Avital while you're having your coffee. That first coffee you have, sitting on your butt, watching your kids. My favorite pictures that I get are just mom's feet up on the coffee table, crossed on the coffee table, a book, a cup of coffee, and blurry in the distance, you see the kids playing and she's just so happy. She's like, my feet are up <laughs> because my kids are playing. It's, it's a wonderful image. That's 
Brilliant. I love it. That can be you too, my dear listener. Thank you so much, Avital. I really, really appreciate you spending the time and sharing your sharing your wisdom and, and your research and all this stuff with your experience. It just makes such a big difference. So thank you. Hunter, you're such a superstar. Thank you so much for having me. I always love connecting with you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Are you inspired to make space for play, to declutter and uh, be really boring as a parent? It really does pay dividends. And this is something we talk about in a Mindful Parenting, of course. And, and I write about this in Raising Good Humans Every Day, which is available for pre-order now. And pre-ordering is such a great way to support the book, it really directly affects the book's chance of success because, you know, it does a bunch of things. It, it tells the publisher to increase their print run, it encourages larger retails to increase their orders so it'll actually be available for people. And when it's released, those pre-order sales count as part of the first week sales, and that allows the book to get onto those bestseller lists, which are really so, so, so important. So please consider pre-ordering because it really makes such a big difference to support this book, Raising Good Humans Every Day. Go to your just your bookseller of choice, and it makes a big, big difference. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for supporting the book. Thank you so much for the awesome reviews you leave on Apple Podcasts. I love this one from D Killen 85 who five-star review who wrote, I love this podcast, been listening for a while, and it is definitely helping me find tools to react better to my toddler. Also, just an overall calmer mind and attitude. Highly recommended. Yay. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad you're here. I wish you a great week. I hope you have some playful moments. Maybe you'll get started on that decluttering. Maybe you'll reach out to the, some people in the neighborhood. I do it and I will too I'll be practicing along with you and I will be back next week right in your podcast player and I'm so glad to connect take care my friend have a lovely week namaste I'd say definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them and not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I have this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it, who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the wait list, so you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. mindfulparentingcourse.com
Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.